Ephesians chapter 1. I want to begin our reading in verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus. This was in accordance with His pleasure and will or purpose to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us, the adopted, in the one that He loves. And in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That forgiveness is in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. This morning, we're going to go into part two of our series on sons and daughters of God. Fascinating passage of Scripture that we're going to look at that deals with this issue of the love of God as it converges with this theme of adoption in the New Testament. This morning, I'm going to take time to look at what I... I'm going to refer to these as the objective aspects of adoption. Okay, they are the, the facts of what adoption is about, how it comes about, how it is purchased, how it is secured, how God is involved in it. Just the, in a sense, the objective descriptions of the theology or doctrine of adoption. Then over the next few weeks, what I want to do is spend some time going into what I will call more of the subjective aspects of adoption. Okay, when I say subjective, what I mean is this. The way in which we experience our relationship with God as sons and daughters. Okay, the way we experience it. Today I want to talk about how we come into that relationship. Okay, and over the next few weeks then, we'll start to unpack this objective truth. We are sons and daughters of God. How does that affect us? What is the so what that comes about when we, when we make that statement? The question is, well, so what? We're sons and daughters of God. How does that work out in our lives experientially? Okay, in our daily life, in the highs and in the lows. How does the fact that God is my Father inform and affect my daily experience. So we'll jump into that over the next few weeks. Now, as we go into a series talking about the theme of sons and daughters of God, okay, I, I know for many people in this room, the thought of talking about God as your father is not something that is profoundly comfortable. Because all of us, when we look at the theme of father, we, certain things come into our mind. Someone asks you, how's your dad? What was your father like? We have very strong, positive and negative emotional responses to that statement, to that relationship. Why? The relationship that we have with our parents should be the most secure, blessed, loving relationship that we experience apart from marriage. And it's one that goes on and even affects us in the context of our marital relationship. That, that relationship doesn't go away. It is a permanent standing that we have with someone on this planet. And it, it, it affects us. It reaches into various aspects of our lives in good and bad ways. 
For some, in profoundly bad ways, because we live in a fallen world. So as we go into this topic, my desire is to do this. My desire is to exalt an option for you. If you don't know Christ, and you grew up in a broken world, here's God's truth for you. He wants to be your Father, who will never let go, who will never fail. And if you know Him personally, He wants you to know Him experientially. He wants you to live the truth of adoption in your daily struggles and in your daily life. So I understand and realize that it is a topic that is difficult. However, it is a topic that in Scripture is unavoidable. Verse 2 of Ephesians 1, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So Paul understands that he has this relationship with God. He has a paternal, affectionate, personal relationship with God. And he assumes that the Ephesians, that this letter is written to, people that live in the city of Ephesus, who are believers, also have begun to experience God as their father. Okay, they've experienced some type of a change that has brought them into a relationship with the creator of the world. And the outcome of that is a massively encouraging truth. That is the doctrine of adoption. The clarification on the discussion of sonship and daughtership with God, and I'm going to use the word sonship as the generic, okay, so I'm not always going to keep saying daughtership because I don't even know if that's a word, okay? I didn't look it up and check, okay? But I know sonship is a word, all right? But it refers to this relationship with a paternal figure. The clarification that we need to make in our day is this, and this is a truth that does not sell easily in a morally relativistic culture that wants to keep things very plural and many options and many roads. Okay, the Bible does not affirm that every human being is a child of God. Okay, you will often hear people talk about we're all children of God. Okay, you can believe that, but that doesn't make it true. Okay, you cannot be a student of Scripture and come away with the belief that every human being is automatically by their physical birth, therefore a son or daughter of God. Okay, it would fly in the face of the clear evidence of Scripture. So look at chapter 2, just real quickly to establish this so that we're clear. The text says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live. Okay, meaning they had a former experience, now they have a new experience in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, as opposed to the creator of the world. The ruler of the kingdom of the air is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And now notice what Paul says. All of us. Okay, so we all have a common heritage Okay, and our common heritage is shared with every person that has ever walked on this planet. What is the common heritage? All of us lived among them at one time. What was it like? We were gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. Okay, meaning now now you have people that are sons and daughters of God by virtue of the new birth. But at one point in our past, we were like the rest by nature. Okay, by our sinful nature which is what we share, objects of wrath. Okay, not objects of God's love, but we were objects of God's rightful judgment. Now, I know that is a truth that cuts. Okay, that is not a truth that we just say, oh, that is so encouraging and comforting. 
Okay? But, if I don't hold out that truth about humanity, people will not see their need of Jesus. So we need to be clear that everyone that you bump into out there on the street is not a son or daughter of God. There are some that are children of wrath, just like all of us were. And I think it's so important that we understand that. Galatians 3 or 4 3 says we at one time were slaves of sin. Romans 5 10 says that we were enemies of God. And, Ro- and Ephesians 5 and verse 6, if you just flip ahead one page, I think for most of us, verse 6 of Ephesians 5, it says this. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Okay, so there are objects of wrath, and there are those in the world that are objects of God's love, affection, concern, and that word that I'll put over top of that is they are his sons or daughters, or they have been adopted into a personal relationship with him. Okay, that is why the gospel is necessary. There are people who are objects of God's wrath. God's wrath was poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, so that those who place faith in his work on the cross can become, by virtue of his righteousness, no longer sons and daughters of wrath, because it is born away by Christ. And they become sons and daughters of God. So when Paul begins this letter in Ephesians 1, he's talking to those that already have God, verse 2, as their father. Sin orphans us from God. Sovereign grace brings us into his family. It is the means by which God adopts us. Okay, and one other thing I want to say is this. As we look at the topic of adoption this morning, kind of breaking down into a couple thoughts, please understand that there is a difference between the discussion about adoption in Scripture and doctrines like regeneration, new birth, and justification. Okay, justification has to do with my legal status before God. Justification, if I am justified by God's grace, it means that I am treated by God just as if I had never sinned. That's different than adoption. Okay, a judge in a courtroom, all right, can acquit someone of a crime. But it doesn't mean he's going to invite that person to come home and be his son or daughter. Okay, so justification, our legal status before God. That is that we are no longer guilty for our sin. Adoption is the theology that talks about our new relationship with God. Okay, and this text goes into a discussion about adoption. All right, and then over the next few weeks we'll look at, how does that change my life? Does that truth of being a son or daughter of God affect my daily experience? Okay, so for today, we're going to look at a, passage of scripture that the apostle Paul calls a eulogy which is interesting because most of us when we think of eulogies what do we think of we think of something that is shared thoughts about a person who is no longer around okay and the word eulogy is the word praise be to God or blessed be God the, the word in the original language is eulogeo which simply means eulogy it's where we get our, our English word eulogy so what is Paul doing Paul is giving a eulogy to God. It is a word in honor of or a word in praise of God because of something that is at the center of this text. And what is at the center of this text is we are no longer sons and daughters of wrath. We are sons and daughters of God by virtue of adoption. Okay, we have been brought into with God a permanent relationship. And so what I want to do is just look at a few truths about adoption from this text, and those truths tell us why Paul is saying, God is blessed. 
Okay, God is blessed. He is worthy of praise and exaltation. Why, Paul? That's the question that should naturally come to mind. Praise be to God. Why should we be full of praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father of everyone who has believed and trusted in Jesus? So let's look at a few reasons for why God is blessed. The first thought this morning comes out of verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says this. It says, God is blessed because He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Which means, because then when you go into verse 5, He's going to go right to the issue. The result of this work of God, this choosing of God, is that you are now adopted into His family. Okay, it is the precursor to the doctrine of adoption. Okay, what is this basically saying? Okay, without getting into the complex theological details of such a text, okay, what it is at least saying is this. Adoption is initiated by who? God. Okay, it is, it is, God initiates the rescue effort, the saving effort, bringing those that are orphaned by sin back into a proper relationship with God. He actively chose us. He initiated and started the relationship that we have with Him. Next question is this. When was that done? Okay, this text says it happened before the foundation of the world. So in eternity past, God devised a plan by which He would pour out saving and adopting love on individuals who would then be called His sons and daughters and who would respond to Him as their Heavenly Father. Which is why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer then says, when you pray, say what? Our Father. Why do we do that? Not because we made a good choice somewhere in the past. No, but because God took the initiative to move in our direction with His glorious and saving grace. The question that then comes to mind is, why did God do that? Why did He, why did he begin this rescue effort? Why did He initiate an effort to bring us out of brokenness and out of judgment and wrath into a personal relationship with Him. What was the aim of this initiated effort towards adoption? And the answer is, is found in two ways. Look at the end of verse 4. It says this. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, the creation of the world, to be, and then he uses two words, to be holy and blameless. Now what does that mean? That means He chose us to be something that is completely contrary to our nature. I am not naturally, that is emerging out of my flesh, holy and blameless. Okay, and for, for most of you, it's not like new information, okay? But that, that anything you see good coming out is not rooted in or sourced in my flesh. Okay? It's not naturally arising. God, in His work of adoption and choosing us for salvation begins this truth that we call sanctification. What is the goal? That we would be holy and blameless. What is God like? Okay, God is holy and blameless. What does He want His sons and daughters to do? He wants them to be like Him. And He draws us into a relationship in which we would more and more begin to resemble Him. That's the aim and goal. That's why Paul says this. Paul says, I labor and work in your midst until Christ is formed in you. Right? The goal of this 
relationship of adoption is that we would become part of the family and therefore begin to resemble the family of God. And the way that that happens is God shakes off sinful patterns and causes to rise within us by His Spirit holy patterns of living and love. Okay, that's His work. That's the, 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 the outcome or purpose of adoption. That we would be like Him. If you've ever spent time around my dad, and this happens all the time, people get around my dad for a half hour, an hour, sitting at dinner or at an event or something like that, and they'll look at me and say, now I know where you get it. Okay, I know exactly what they mean. Okay, they mean that sense of humor that's a little quirky. They're like, we understand now. Okay, you're not responsible for that. Why? I, I resemble, and if people get around my mom, they say, I knew that was your mom. How could you tell? Okay, if you know my mom, you know how. Okay, <laughs> we have similar profiles. All right. So people get there is a resemblance, there is a, a likeness, there is an ability for people when they see my one brother Donnie, they're like, he is. We, I knew he was your brother before you told me he was. Okay, it happened last night when I was at, the, at, at Arlene's viewing, Bob, with your son-in-law. His brother came in. He has a beard. His brother doesn't. And it was just like I said, you are definitely his brother. He said, well, how do you know? It was, just, it was as clear as day. Now, folks, here's what God has done. He initiates a relationship with us. In that relationship, you know what he wants as our father? He wants us to be people that bear his likeness, that resemble him. Why? Because we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives in the world that we live in. And he has initiated this relationship so that we could show his love to the world. But here's the part that to me is amazing. At the end of verse 4 and then going into verse 5, it says this. It says, in love... He predestined us. That is, He foreordained for us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. And this is where the word adoption now, this birthing of sons, is the idea of the Greek word. He takes us from what we were and births us into this new relationship with Him. What motivated that? The love of God. Why did He do it? Because He wants objects of affection. He desires to pour out His love and concern upon your life. Love that starts with God. It doesn't start with us. It's not like God looked over the portals of heaven and said, look at all those cute, loving people. It's not, it's not like somebody's going through a book saying, which child would I like to choose? It's not like that. We were by nature objects of wrath. That wrath that our sin deserves would fall on His Son. In love. What did He do? He foreordained, He predetermined that we would experience something that would forever change our life. What would forever change our life and is related to justification. But that justification would not bring us into a relationship with God. It would mean that we could just die and enter into an eternity oblivious to everything because there's no punishment for our sin. But justification in and of itself does not bring me into this realm of adoption. Do you understand? I could be forgiven of my sin and go into oblivion and not have a relationship with God but not experience the penalty for my sin. God designed something more glorious. And that is that we would experience His affection and to experience that affectionate, that filial, that family, that intimate relationship, what did He do? He planned our adoption. And what motivated that choice? What motivated that choice was His love. His holiness motivates the need for justification. His love prompts His will 
to adopt us into his family. Adoption is the means by which we become sons and daughters of God. Same way that it works in the human realm. Kevin and Alyssa Cullen are up in Connecticut right now, adopting a little girl named Aubrey Reagan. Going through all this hassle, paperwork, two weeks in a hotel room, staying with friends. Talked to Kevin a little bit yesterday because sense a little frustration with all the details. Why are you going through it? Love. Why are you going through it? The desire for an object of affection. That's the answer to that question. I put it into my computer yesterday. Cost of raising a child. Okay? Want to have fun? Put that in your computer. Make you nervous and scared. Okay? Because when you think, why God chose us, at what cost? At a phenomenal cost. And brought us into a relationship that is irrevocable. I can do whatever I want to do. And guess what? Donald Samuel Hoff is still my dad. No matter what I do. Why? I was born his son. And God, in his greater grace and love, not only forgave us, but he drew us into this incredible, glorious relationship that is costly. Kevin and Alyssa are adopting another child. There are things that they don't know. And these are numbers that come from the United States government a few months ago, and you know you can always trust government numbers. Okay? Here's the estimate for the average middle-class American family to raise a child from birth to 18. Okay? Here's the number. All you newlyweds are just going to stare at me now in complete disbelief and dismay. $222,000. Okay, it's not to say you can't do it for less. Okay? The other thing I researched was what is the cost of adoption? The average cost of adoption, it's a strange kind of range, but it's between $5,000 and $40,000 to adopt a child. You know what the question in my mind is? Why do people do that? For the same reason that God does what He does for us. He desires objects of affection that He can pour out His love on. That's why. Okay, people don't have kids. Well, let me read for you these things, okay? This, this is fad. These are responses to this thing. One writer says this. Of the 226,000, worth every penny. An absolute blessing to have the chance to raise a child. Another one says this expensive, sure, but certainly worth it. One of the most satisfying things I've done in life. Whatever is second behind parenting, my two amazing daughters, is so far back that I can't even see it. Sure, my wife and I could afford to travel more, buy nicer cars and own better furniture if we were childless. But that trade-off is so easy to make that it barely merits a mention. Isn't that cool? God, in His grace, chose to bring us into a relationship of adoption. This guy then says, he says, would you rather have an Audi or an Alley? A Saab or a Sam? I was just talking about us kids. You just saying, you know... Yeah, is there sacrifice in having kids? Yes, it is immensely costly. Don't think about it. A person in Tel Aviv said this. They said, I think we all knew going in that raising children doesn't make sound financial sense. And what's fascinating to me is that one came from Tel Aviv, okay? So that's good you know, Jewish thinking, thinking shrewdly and carefully. 
No rational person, one said, would ever have a child. <laughs> okay? He said, it is the biggest gamble that you could ever take in every way possible. We do it for purely selfless and irrational reasons. The primacy of love. Why did God choose you? Not because he looked over the walls of heaven and said, I can't imagine life without Rocco Kiera. Can't imagine what eternity would be like without John Baker there. What? It's not, it's not how it worked. We were objects of wrath, even as the rest. But he loved us. Why? That's a mystery. I can't answer that question for you. I just know he was motivated by a love that needed to be satisfied. And so Kevin and Alyssa are adopting a daughter that they have never met. She was born, I think, just two weeks ago. They knew nothing about her. You know what they did? They chose to love her. And they chose to take full responsibility for her future, no matter what, in a way that is, by law, irrevocable. Okay, that to me is an amazing thought. Because that's what God did for you. Not because you deserved it, but because you desperately needed it. Every believer, we need to realize this, we owe our relationship with God as our Father, our adoption, to His sovereign love and grace. And that above everything else in life, should make us such humble people. It's impossible to be proud when you're around people who have rescued you and loved you and served you. You can't be proud around those kind of people unless you forget what they've done for you. Then it's easy to become proud. Let, let this love, adoptive love, that was initiated by God, bring a change in your heart. Let it humble you so that when you sing His praises, you literally pour out your affection to God. You don't restrain it because you're afraid of what people around you are going to think. No, it is to the praise of His glory and grace that this was done. Come back to that thought in a moment. Adoption is initiated by God, but impossible apart from Christ. And so the second thought is this. Adoption that we experience with God, is provided or made possible by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5 in this text. It says, He predestined us in love to be adopted as His sons. Where, what is the realm in which that happens? What is the, the mechanism? What is the, the channel? What is the means that God ordained by which we would become sons and daughters? What's the text say? Through... Jesus Christ. With initially very little explanation. The assumption is that when he says the name Jesus Christ, all of the thoughts about the gospel, about the incarnation, about the perfect life, about the shameful death and resurrection of Christ, that all of that, all of that redeeming work would flood into their minds. And it's saying to them, you were adopted through Jesus Christ. And what he stands for and what he did, the work that he accomplished for you, is how adoption became possible. Because we were sons and daughters of wrath. Okay, and sometimes I think we minimize that thought. We don't want to think about that because we think that's harsh truth. That harsh truth is what makes the love of God so amazing. It is set in contrast. We are pulled out of darkness and death into the realm of life. A death that we deserved. A wrath that we deserved. In love. He predestined us to become His sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And notice how this just kind of launches Paul into this kind of uh, verse full of superlatives. He did this in accordance with His pleasure. Folks, do you understand that? 
His adopting us and making us His children brought Him pleasure. Kevin sounded frustrated yesterday, but you know what else he sounded? He sounded really happy. He sounded really delighted. As do most dads on the day of their child's birth. Okay? Ladies are usually still recovering, but most dads are just exuberant with what? There's a joy. There's a happiness. God has brought a new little one into our house. Forget the fact that it's going to cost us $226,000. Okay? We have a child. And what do we, we ignore all the risk. And we make a commitment. You're ours. We're going to take you home. And we will raise you and love you. It says that he did this in accordance with his pleasure and will. That is just an amazing... His, his pleasure, his joy, his delight, and then his will. What is his will? It's his purpose. It's his plan that is unchangeable and unalterable and profoundly humbling for everyone who has experienced his saving grace. He goes on then to say this. He did it to the praise of his glorious grace. So that Paul would later say, praise be to God. Go back to verse 3, right? That Paul would say, God is worthy of our praise and glory and honor because he is so incredible. Where was this grace manifested? He has freely given it to us in the one he loves, which is who? Our older brother, Jesus Christ. Okay, don't let that terminology shock you. Okay, go read through scripture and find where he is called our older brother, the firstborn son of God, the preeminent son of God, through whom God the Father created the world. He has given it to us in the one He loves. What kind of grace is it? It is glorious grace. It is, and this is the Greek gets hard here, it's, it's plentiful grace, it's grace abounding grace. So that there is no one in this room that the grace of God cannot forgive. Why? Because His grace is not for average sinners. His grace is an abundant, amazing, overflowing grace. So that even someone like the Apostle Paul who had killed Christians, could be forgiven and find the wrath of God removed. Why? Because Jesus Christ provided the means by which this new relationship would come. In verse 8, he, he says this. He says, He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding this grace and love that come through the cross work of Jesus. He lavished it. He just kept pouring it out. You know the picture that comes to my mind? The picture that comes to my mind is Luke chapter 15. The son comes home from his rebellion. He doesn't just get an attaboy on the back. He gets a feast. He doesn't just get a look in the eye. He is showered with kisses. He is overwhelmed with hugs from his father. To the point that it makes self-righteous people very angry. Why? Because it is a shocking grace that is poured out on objects that deserve wrath. So folks, when you experience God's grace, what should it do? It should humble you. Why? It is not coming to you because of anything good that you have done. It is coming to you because of, through the work of Jesus on the cross. He bore away your sin and gives you in its place the Father's love. Why was it needed? Because we were not cute, attractive orphans. We were rebels who deserved the wrath of God. And we were in that state just like everybody else. We have a common heritage as humanity and it's not pretty. Look at world history. Okay? Look at your reactions to circumstances when you're caught off guard and the instinctive response comes out. 
It's not usually pretty. We deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus Christ has provided an alternative route for humanity. Through His love, He has made a way. Verse 7 makes a fascinating statement. It says, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, even, some translations put it that way, even the forgiveness of sins in plural. Okay, now, and the emphasis in the original language goes something like this. These sins signifies the actual and numerous manifestations of our sinful nature. What did Christ deliver us from? What did He redeem us from? From not our sin, simplistic, but from our sin in volumes. From all the manifestations of wickedness that reside in the human heart. He has forgiven us of all of that. And so the, 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 the breadth of His forgiveness, that's why it's grace abounding that Paul talks about here that God is worthy of praise for. Because it can save and rescue anyone. That's why John Newton, a rebel slave trader, could be broken by grace and write our favorite song for most people, Amazing Grace. Why? He was stunned by what God did for him. He understood that God wasn't looking down saying, life with John Newton would be amazing. No, what he looked down and saw was a rebel in need of grace. And he rescued John Newton from a horrific lifestyle of buying and selling slaves. And that man would live the humblest life. Why? Because he understood that he was just like the rest, Ephesians 2 and verse 3. And see, sometimes we forget that. That we were desperately in need of God's help and grace. We are in this light of amazing grace, not barely free from our sin. We are totally free from the penalty and punishment of our sin. And so we can sing the song, No Condemnation, Now I Dread. And not just that, but that we are now, as we sung this morning, seated at His table. As what? As family. As family. Folks, if you don't long for heaven, you don't see God as your Father. If you don't long, like you long when it gets close to the holidays, and hey, you know it's going to be really nice to be home for Thanksgiving and be with the family. If you don't ever think about heaven in that way, if you aren't a person who is longing for His return, you are not meditating on the doctrine of adoption. You, know, you are not thinking about the glorious nature of what it means to be a son or daughter of God. And I want to just encourage you. Look at what Christ has done for you. Look at the relationship that He has made possible. And as you do that, it will serve to check pride. It will serve to promote gratitude in your heart. And it will simply be the outcome of this understanding of a new relationship with God by new birth. The last thought that I want to press upon you this morning this from verses 13 and 14. It says, And you also were included in Him, that is, in Christ. When? You were included in Him when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. Okay, now this becomes a key statement in this text. Who is it that experiences adoption? Well, at one level we know it is those that were rightfully objects of God's wrath. It is those who have been affected through Jesus Christ in some way through His cross work. But what does it boil down to personally? 
What it boils down to personally in this verse is those that are included in Christ were included in Christ when they heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, which we just talked about in verse 7. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal. Okay, so here's the key thing. You can talk all you want about predestination and all you want about election, which are doctrines that I believe. But we must press upon people this need that is clearly laid for us in this text. And the question that I would put before you this morning is, not do you think you are a child of God? My question to you this morning would be this. Have you believed that you are an object of God's wrath by virtue of your rebellion and that He loves you through His Son, Jesus Christ? Have you understood the gospel that magnifies His glorious and plenteous grace through Jesus who hung on a cross to pay the price for your sin? Have you believed that you're a sinner? Have you believed that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will save you if you trust in Him? Well, see, because that's where this comes down to. Who is it that enjoys... Adoption. Who is, who is secured by the work of the Spirit? In this text it says it is those who believe the message about Christ. Which leads us to this next thought. Adoption is secured by the work of the Spirit. Verse 13 uses one word and then verse 14 uses another word to describe this relationship that we have with God that is described as a permanent relationship. You heard the word of truth, you believed it, and then what happened? You, okay, so you respond towards God with belief, faith and trust in Christ that I believe is initiated by a work of the Spirit of God in my heart. He cultivates and prompts faith and trust in the work of Jesus. We believe, and what does God do? Okay, it comes back our direction now. Okay, we hear the message of the gospel, the Spirit of God, at some way activates our heart, causing us to want to believe something that we would naturally resist. And we reach out to God in faith, and He reaches back towards everyone that cries out to Him in faith. And what does He do? He, he seals them. Okay, fascinating word. It's the same word that would be used in the ancient culture for the marking of a slave, to indicate that they are the property of an individual. They belong to them. The branding of cattle. Same idea is used here. Okay, we are marked with a, a sign of ownership and authority. Okay, so the, and what does that mean? It means that we have now been marked, which indicates ownership, as God's children. We are born from above. We bear His likeness now. And the second thing that He says in verse 14 is this. We're, 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 we're marked in Him with a seal, that seal is the promised Holy Spirit, okay, which Jesus talks about, the Spirit comes and is the seal of ownership. But He is also this, He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, and again, to the praise of His glory. Now this is, this is fascinating. The, the mark indicates ownership, the down payment guarantees the completion of what was begun when we were marked in Christ. Okay? So it's like somebody goes to buy a car, they leave a down payment. The purpose of that down payment, theoretically, okay, in a perfect world is, I left this down payment, I will be back to make the final 
purchase and that car will be completely mine. Okay? In salvation, what does the Spirit of God do? He comes as the assurance money that guarantees the full purchase of the children of God at death. Okay, does that make sense? So he is he's the seal. He marks us as God's. But he is also the down payment that guarantees the, our future status and relationship with him. Okay, so what, what happens then? Our adoption is secured by God with the focus on assurance, permanence, and this word you can say two ways. The irrevocable or irrevocable nature of our relationship with God. Why? Because we are made His sons and daughters. Okay, which is an amazing and glorious truth. Who is, who is it that's secured by the Spirit in this way? Those that believe. Verse 13. Okay, do you see the connection then? Belief that moves towards God is responded to us by God with a down payment that guarantees our future place with Him. So, He sends the gospel. We respond in faith. He sends a seal and down payment. And one day He comes to take us to be with Him forever. Why? Because we are His sons and daughters. Okay? Now, the last question that comes up is, why did God do this? Okay? Why did God work it out in this way? And the, the fourth thought is this. Because our adoption is the ground swell of worship. Okay? Our adoption is the groundswell of worship that magnifies the grace of God. Okay? The Father chooses. The Son pays the redeeming price. And the Spirit of God guarantees in the heart of the believer the relationship with God. And so what you see in this text is what? In three cases, God moving in the direction of rebels to bring them into a permanent relationship with Him. Okay? That's, that's what's going on in this text. Three times that happens. So the ultimate aim of our salvation is not our personal pleasure. The ultimate aim of our salvation is the glory of God. Okay? It is about Him. And it is right for God to attract our attention towards Himself. Why? He is the giver of life. He is the sustainer of life. Okay, I don't know anyone that has God's capacities. No one else is worthy of such adoration and praise. So in this text, what happens? Three times, it gives us the reason for what God is doing. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. And to verse 12, that we might be for the praise of His glorious grace. Which, that is a thought that amazes me. Okay, it is for the praise of His glorious grace. It is so that we, the redeemed, might be to the praise of... So that people will look at our changed life and give glory to God. Isn't that exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Think you're a really good person. No. You know what? Most of us settle for cheap substitutes, don't we? We want to live a good life so people acknowledge that we do. We crave recognition. And when we do, we settle for less than the best. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, who is alone worthy of all praise and honor. So what one writer said is this, J.I. Packer said this, he said what we need to do as Christians to get in touch with the, the power of adoption of this relationship with God, we need to go out and walk under starry skies and look at 
and be amazed by the firmament and by the creation that God has made. And realize that it is to that God who put all that into place is your Father. Do you see how powerful that is? So that when He is exalted, we are the most fortunate people on earth. Okay, and I'll t- I'll, I'll, let me personalize it in this way. I, by the blessing of God, am grateful for the home that I was raised in. I thank God for that. And I, I experience a, for me, I'm proud of my dad. Okay, not in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a worshipful kind of way, but I am grateful for the dad that God gave me. How much more? Do you see? How much more? So Isaiah 40 verse 26 would say, Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one. He calls them each by name because of His great power and strength. Not one of them is missing. Who is that? That's our Father. That's our Father. Who has chose to bring us into a relationship with Himself. And who, two times in this text, is accused of glorying in His kind intention that has rescued us from our sin. That is the thing that to me is amazing. Yes, the purpose is that we would glory in God. But you know what the text also says? It says that He is glorying in us. The kind outworking of His intention encourages us. We are the objects of His affections. And He delights over us, Zephaniah says, with singing. An amazing, stunning thought. And He did all of this, verse 9 says, according to His good pleasure and kind intention. That is... The message translates it this way. It says, and this gave him great pleasure. To redeem rebels and to make them his sons and daughters. And this brought him great pleasure. And folks, our response should be, praise be to God. Praise be to God for his infinite and unsearchable love and ways. You become His child by faith in the Gospel. If you have this morning never believed, then I would encourage you to this necessary response to the Gospel. Verse 13. Have you believed? I'm not saying do you acknowledge intellectually what Christ has done. I'm asking you, are you solely trusting in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? Are you trusting in that alone, out of a conviction that apart from Him, I deserve the wrath of God? If you've never trusted Him, I think this text would challenge you to come into the realm of those that have been adopted. Come by faith. Come no matter how deep your sin is because His grace is an overabundant and plentiful grace. Secondly, let the greater pleasures and affections of adoption that are spoken of here, this relationship with the Creator, let those affections help you to resist the lesser pleasures of sin. Because what happens? If I regard iniquity in my heart, my Father won't hear me. So sometimes we find ourselves, yes, we're God's child, but we are not in any way enjoying intimacy and affection with Him because we have allowed lesser pleasures than the pleasure of adoption to infect our relationship. And there's brokenness. Happens all the time in the human realm. It can happen in your relationship with God. Okay? Focus on the fact that He is your Father. And you will find that you become disinclined to breaking His heart. Because the greater affection will cause other affections to die because you will starve them to death by ignoring them because they are no longer worthy when you understand this relationship that you have with Him. Be humbled by the fact that God 
is our Heavenly Father. Remember that you are His by His love and design and thank Him for taking the initiative to love you first and realize this morning, parental love may fail, but God's love never fails. That's why the psalmist said, he could say, if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. That's the doctrine of adoption from an objective perspective. Father, we thank you this morning for your word.